Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. This week Sam speaks to the Aurora Orchestra about their new spherically shaped CD. Tim takes a virtual tour of Britain's most musical living room. And we delve into the life of one of America's most enigmatic composers, Julius Eastman. And the birds are tweeting and everything. You know, I remember stepping in for the conductor that I was supposed to cover because his mother passed away and they made the backstage voice of God announcement that I was going to be conducting. And fortunately, nobody got up and left the room. Um, but I, I remember <clears throat> and I was here, in fact, here in Florida and I walked out on stage and I looked down and there were these two little black boys sitting together like on the front row and the look in their face was and I just, I just sort of gave them a wink and said, yeah, this is a possibility for you too. You know, I didn't say it out loud, but, but we sort of communicated that. And um, I, I think that's an, that's an important thing. I, I think to the extent that anyone sees anyone that looks like them doing something and accomplishing something, that has to be fuel for them to believe that it's possible for them too. That was the voice of Thomas Wilkins, the principal conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. It was recorded last week as part of a Facebook Live conversation between him, Michael Morgan, Jonathan Hayward and Roderick Cox. All are conductors and all are either black or mixed race. Over the course of an hour, the quartet discussed their careers through the lens of their skin colour and mutual experiences of prejudice within the industry. It's a really worthwhile watch, so we've put a link to the video in the description below. Speaking of Roderick Cox, this week the Minnesota Orchestra, for whom Cox is associate conductor, announced it will no longer use Minneapolis police officers for concert security, not until either government regulations mandate a police presence or the MPD implements fundamental changes. The orchestra, which has been based in Minneapolis since its foundation in 1903, has also committed to reducing, quotes, reliance on and reproduction of white privilege and to disrupt our own role in systematic racism. For those that have been living under a rock, the announcement comes in response to the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. The video of his murder triggered a wave of Black Lives Matter protests around the world. This is just the latest organisation to break ties with the MPD. Minneapolis state schools and city parks made the same move last week. Neither is it the first classical institution to confront structural racism within its own ranks. The Guildhall School of Music and ABRSM are two examples of UK organisations that have released similar statements this week. Both promise a comprehensive review of systems, processes and representation. 
it remains to be seen whether this is merely lip service or the start of a genuine period of change in the sector. In mid-April, one month after the lockdown measures came into effect, the National Police Chiefs Council reported a 20% reduction in crime. It seemed that even burglars were happy to forgo their booty <laughs> in the name of protecting the NHS. But hopes for a long-term reduction in crime were dashed this week following a heist at Somerset's Chelston Business Park, the target leading musical instrument retailer John Packer Limited. The thieves apparently broke in through the fabric of the building, whatever that means, on Friday night, taking a selection of woodwind instruments, mostly saxophones. So no taste either. Esteemed brass band magazine Four Bars Rest, who broke the story, have listed the serial numbers of each stolen instrument in an article linked in the description below, should any vigilante sax players want to take matters into their own hands. <laughs> Sax man. <laughs> um, what? Sorry. Like an example, I'm thinking um, of Dean Dixon, which I'm sure you all are are, are familiar with, an American conductor, um, African American conductor who was head of the Frankfurt Radio Symphony and Sydney Symphony. Um, Sibelius himself invited. Um, Dixon to his home and told him that his his performance of the of the Fifth Symphony was the best he had ever heard. Um, but if anyone goes to Spotify or iTunes and type in Dean Dixon's name, albums pop up, but you will never see his face. Um, and I think this is the story of his life. The, the industry consciously didn't want the public to know who the man was behind the music. I think because of, of, of record sales and he conducted most major uh, American orchestras. Hey Sam, what news bees are we going to have this week? Oh, I don't know. I've run out of ideas. We'll put it in when we do the edit. <laughs> okay. Domingo Hidoyan is to be the new chief conductor of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, replacing Vasily Petrenko in September 2021. It is not yet known whether the Venezuelan conductor, who currently lives with his opera singer wife, Sonia Yoncheva in Switzerland, plans to move to Liverpool upon commencing his post. We assume not. The Grammys are to stop using urban to describe music of black origin in its awards categories. The prize for Best Urban Contemporary Album will be renamed Best Progressive R&B Album, amongst other changes. A good one. A £2.5 million fund set up by Help Musicians UK has run dry after just five days. The fund received over 3,500 applicants and is the second of its kind to be organised by the charity. The first, announced at the beginning of lockdown, distributed over £8 million to 17,000 musicians. Gautier Capuçon has pulled off a flip-flop to rival even the most equivocatory of politicians. After announcing a series of free al fresco concerts last month, the French cellist cheekily revealed he would charge local authorities rather than audiences for the privilege of hosting him. This week he gave in to criticism and re-announced the concert series as free. Theresa May would have been proud. <laughs> in a multifaceted piece of irony, the Grammy award-winning country trio Lady A, who changed their name from Lady Antebellum in recognition of its white supremacist connotations, have been denounced by the black blues singer Anita White, stage name Lady 
A. White has performed as Lady A for over 20 years and told Rolling Stone magazine, it's an opportunity for them to pretend they're not racist or pretend this means something to them. And finally, a good news story from friend of the pod, Susie Blankfield. Normally a cellist, Susie has diversified during lockdown, making recycled necklaces from old bits of jewellery. She's raised over £500 for the music social enterprise Soundcastle and has turned her project into a fully functioning business. There's a link to her store in the description below. Good job, Susie. Um, I, I still get many comments uh, from people, which I know isn't true, but saying um, when they say that I've never seen a black conductor before. And mm. let's be honest, there are very, very few. There are uh, many Most orchestras. And, uh, I'm sorry? Most of us are here on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, when I get that question, I say, yeah, there's me, there's Michael, there's Leslie, there's... You know. Tim, can you prep the discomfort alarm? Oh dear, is Harry Enfield going on the Today programme again? No, it's not that bad. Link to that in the description. We're going to be talking about a piece by American composer and super polymath Julius Eastman with a title deliberately designed to make us squirm a bit. Today we're going to be analysing Julius Eastman's piece Evil N-Word. Presumably that's what you need the alarm for. Absolutely. It's a pre-minimalist piece for two pianos that lasts around 15 to 20 minutes. A brilliant piece by a composer who refused to play by the rules. Was he a cheat? No, no. Eastman was a self-saboteur, if anything. He wrote titles like Evil N-Word or Gay Gorilla or If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich? Titles that, as a homosexual African-American, he felt he could use, but that deliberately make the classical establishment a bit uncomfortable. They expose a wound. I guess the danger there is that highlighting a fracture can mean being cast aside by those unwilling to acknowledge it. For sure. And his career probably suffered for just that reason. It's been suggested by Eastman's friends and excellent musicologist Mary Jane Leach that through his music, Eastman was trying to heal those fractures, those societal wounds. Here's what Evil N-Word sounds like. Forgive me for leaping across the biographical musical chasm, but that piece, which sounds to me like Roadrunner sprinting on your temples, feels representative of how Eastman lived his life. It creates a perpetual sense of now. It's definitely teeming with urgency, isn't it? Yeah, and today I want to show you how I think that urgency, that being in the moment, that now, is created. Why it reflects Eastman, the creator, and why it might be important to think about now, now. I'm about to use the title again, so perhaps we could prep the alarm. Evil N makes me focus on the moment when I listen to it, as it's such an unpredictable piece. The audience can't know exactly what's coming next, and neither can the performers. The piece is only partially notated, you see, with little figures given as interruptions of the repeated notes, and some labelled as semi-optional. It gives the pair of performers room to improvise. Uh, and we think of this as a room to improvise in. 
Ooh. Oh yeah, that is nice. So with partial notation, are there any bars? Nope, no bars at all. The piece is instead run on timers. Take me through timers. Literally a stopwatch. With sections dictated by when that watch hits certain moments. So we've got interruptions, improvisations and no bar structures. What's going on with the harmony? Well, the harmonic landmarks are also constantly shifting, changing the context of the familiar repeated notes. Listen to it here. Any time we've got comfortable with the diddlem diddlem figure, a new chord will arrive around it and make us consider it anew. The final thing that brings us into the now are those repeated notes pummeling you in the front of the face and then the recurring continuo figure, which pops up throughout just to shepherd any wandering minds. So that's Roadrunner on the Temples, that bit then? Yeah. How does this relentless nowness evoke Julius Eastman, the man? Well, he lived life deontologically. I do love it when you speak Greek. What is deontology? Parakalo. Deontology is basically considering actions only in the moment, as ends in themselves. He acted on what he believed was right in the abstract, not thinking about the consequences. So that must have got him into some trouble then? Absolutely. When he was appearing as the bass soloist in the Christmas Oratorio at a pretty big-time performance at Cornell University, he didn't do what I would do, which is obsess over the possible consequences of doing this performance well or badly. Nope, he decided to start improvising a fresh aria over the orchestral accompaniment that, according to his friend the composer David Bowden, sounded like a Bobby McFerrin extended vocal technique demo. And presumably this wasn't the plan. It took everyone, the fellow performers, conductor and audience, by surprise. The rest of the performance was just a normal Christmas oratorio. I can see how that might have some negative consequences for his career then. It did, but he felt it was the right thing to do, creatively, truthfully, in that moment. He was free from obligation to any of history's totems. Why is this relentless nowness, this deontology, relevant now, today? Well, I reckon this is a radical moment we're in, as our normal understanding of consequences, cause and effect doesn't really apply. Yeah, I mean, normally I don't have to scrub myself head to toe just to pop out to the co-op. Exactly. This is the moment to rethink. And if you're rethinking, free of consequences, you have to consider what your principles are. What do you believe is right now, right in and of itself, if the consequences are uncertain? And consequences are usually the excuse for not doing things that seem obviously right. Yeah. In these unprecedented times, we can all act a bit more like Julius Eastman and consider what is right or wrong deontologically, because we're freed of having to worry about the consequences for ticket sales or audience share. We can expose and consider the wounds in society and in music, just as Eastman did. In principle, is it right that we don't have better representation and diversity in classical music? Is it right that Classic FM only played two black composers in a fortnight? Is it right that such a small number of women are amongst our busiest conductors, or that trans performers are facing barriers imposed by others? If these unjust situations are ever going to change, it will be because we act with the urgency 
the radical nowness of composers like Julius Eastman. Composer fact file, Julius Eastman. Born October 1930, New York. He didn't start the piano until he was 14, but went on to study at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. As well as a pianist, he was a singer celebrated for his resonant baritone. He recorded Peter Maxwell Davis's Eight Songs for a Mad King and performed the piece with Pierre Boulez at Lincoln Center. He was a member of the Buffalo-based composer collective, the Creative Associates. He left Buffalo for New York after a controversial performance of John Cage's songbook, which included nudity and homoerotic allusion. Once in New York, he became the first male vocalist in Meredith Monk's vocal ensemble. Compositions from this era featured controversial titles such as Evil N-Word, Crazy N-Word, and Gay Gorilla. The last of these reimagines Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, as a gay manifesto. Many of his scores were impounded by the New York City Sheriff's Office following an eviction. He spent much of this time homeless. He died of a heart attack, aged 49, alone in a Buffalo hospital. No public notice was given of his death until eight months later. He once said, What I'm trying to achieve is to be what I am to the fullest. Black to the fullest, a musician to the fullest, a homosexual to the fullest. I, I really do think that, that people, when people think conductor, they think something that doesn't look like us. And when people show up that look like us, they don't think that we are the conductor. And this is the case with women also, that you know, when you're younger, you absolutely make mistakes. You absolutely will make mistakes. And they, uh, they being sort of the, the wider world, has, I'll just say, less patience with mistakes from people that don't look like what they expect in the first place. Because uh, I was at Chicago Symphony for several years, so everybody passed through, and I saw some, some people make some very big mistakes who went on to, to, to quite large careers. But I've seen a lot of women and minority conductors where they make a mistake or do a bad concert, and that's the end of, of their relationship with whatever that, whatever that was. For a musician in normal times, a steady stream of recitals requires constant work in the practice room. This, coupled with the demands of concert promoters, means that new or risky repertoire can often end up at the bottom of the pile. For the violinist Tamsin Whaley-Cohen and pianist George Zhang Fu, the last three months have provided an opportunity both to explore some of that new, riskier repertoire and to give a platform to others wanting to do the same. Living Room Live, set up by the duo along with Tamsin's sister, composer Freya Whaley-Cohen, is the product of their joint isolation. The online concert series has featured performances from a raft of classical talent, violinist Amalia Hall, percussionist Joby Burgess and accordionist Samuel Talaria, just a few of the names to have been featured. I caught up with Freya, George and Tamsin last week to find out how the series has been received and how they put up with each other over the last three months. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love it. It's cool. <laughs> it's like the last time I spoke to either of you, Tamsin or Freya, obviously th things were a bit different, weren't they? But, yeah. But, um, yeah. 
Uh, Are you coping all right with each other? With each other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> we'll call you later to answer that separately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we are. I mean, it's probably like Freya. You've got you've got some commissions that you're yeah, in, kind in of working w- on, but in a way, for a composer, it's quite a different thing because a lot of the things I was writing, the commissions have all been postponed, so they yeah. still they still exist, and I can still write them. As it happens, I basically at the time when lockdown happened developed RSI so I couldn't compose for a couple of months but I finally started composing again because uh, right. my hands have gotten better enough so oh that's yeah. good yeah I, I mean how have you found being together in an intense creative well creative environment I suppose is it has it has it been tricky adapting to each other well I think I would say like Fer and I um sort of know each other quite well well already (laughs) um we sort of probably know what to expect and like of course there's ups and downs and there's been days when I think different people have felt really low or really energetic and the kind of energies have been maybe sometimes at cross purposes but overall like of course it is intense and our parents are here too which makes it more which yeah that makes oh yeah I didn't even think of that (laughs) yeah and then of course for George who is then here Amongst you know all the yeah, madness so of George, our family. George and Daniel are the um, out brave outsiders. Yeah, yeah. How George? How have you found it? Is, have have they welcomed you with loving arms? You know what? They have. They absolutely have. And um, you know, I'm I'm loving it. Uh, as Tamsin said, there's ups and downs, but um, I think one thing that I'm, you know, enjoying is that I think we all kind of have very strong ideas and creative outlooks. I think our personalities are all very, you know, very, very big personalities. And so therefore, I think when we come together and make stuff, it's, it's really interesting what comes out. You know, you, you, you kind of get the sense that, you know, a bunch of creative ideas coming together. It really, it's, it's, it's really inspiring, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So Other than the whole, you know, emotional thing of, um, you know, living with their parents George is also a re- really amazing cook and has been like cooking <laughs> loads of Ooh. like really extraordinary things <laughs> that must endear him to the parents then surely if they, I mean, except for when there. he makes spicy tofu which my dad can't eat oh my goodness yeah, <laughs> that, spicy was funny. Yeah, that was basically the biggest point of contention was the spicy tofu <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of envious I've been mostly on my own for but well I have I have a housemate well, I actually have two two housemates. One of them's been at her back his parents for the whole time, but the other one works nights. So I've sort of been tiptoeing around in the day whilst he's been asleep. That's weird. But you, I mean, didn't, you didn't go to your parents. No, I did, my my mum's quite badly. She's asthmatic, and I don't know they probably would have let me come back, but yeah, I mean, you don't want to be like the person that kind of like kills your parents. <laughs> no, no. <you> <laughs> I have quite a few friends who are in that kind of position, and it's who've killed their parents. No, they, haven't. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't, but it's like it means that you know haven't seen them for months. Yeah, which yeah. is really tough. I mean, it's fine. I I'm gonna hopefully see them soon, so I'm not too worried. But anyway, back to um, living room live for our the benefit of our listeners who haven't heard of the project. Could you give a very brief? sort of roundup of what it is and how you came to do it together. Freya's going to do that. Okay, yeah, sure. So we started Living Room Live basically the day of the the first day of the lockdown or maybe the first day 
before it we were having a conversation and talking about you know George is a pianist and Tamsin's a violinist and why don't we isolate together and we could start making music but also the fact that the idea of isolating and being apart from the entire music community felt really daunting and what could we do that would be sort of bringing everyone together and a way of pooling resources and pooling audience and sort of creating a way for musicians to connect with their audience and get paid although it's all done by donation so mm. it's always um you know tricky because everyone's strapped for cash including the audience at the moment so that's um that was the basic concept and then George very quickly made the website and we put together this idea of you know let's do live concerts um, let's get really excellent people with, and let's ask them what they feel is right for them to play at this moment that feels like mm. what they can yeah. play right now. And um, yeah, so the concerts are shorter than you might hear in a concert hall, um, partially just because the format that feels better, because it is very different listening to a live stream than a than a concert and not physically being there with people. So yeah. Also just trying to keep it really personal and informal, so yeah. you're kind of almost the opposite of the concert hall experience where people are really literally inviting you into their living rooms and sort of seeing how musicians live uh, with music in a way that you don't normally see in the concert hall. Yeah, I'm doing that next year, yep, yep. That's you good. know, the one thing I've been saying this week when we're doing all this Black Lives Matter stuff out in the streets is almost every orchestra has something about Black Lives Matter on their website right now, to this mm -hmm. week. But if you take that same orchestra and you see they read their Black Lives Matter thing, then you look at their season. There's almost no black composers. One orchestra, which shall remain, again, shall remain nameless and is at the center of all of this. You know, they had two tiny pieces by black composers, no black conductors, no black soloists, one black singer, along the way, you know, don't tell me about Black Lives Matter and then none of it's reflected in your season at all, period. It's interesting. So out of all of the performances, do you have anything that surprised you or anything that stood out because you are seeing them in, in this home environment? Has, any, has anything took you by surprise? Um, yeah, well, first off, uh, you know, the most apparent has been, you know, where, where people live and where people make music is very different. Um, you know, because when you go to the concert hall, we all just sort of kind of dress in a, look the same. like we all kind of look the same, to be honest, you know, we kind of, you know, dress to our nines and do everything. Uh, but you know, you see people, they want to represent who they are and obviously they dress up, but not in the same way. It's kind of like, you know, visiting an artist studio in a way. And also, um, because there's a lot more talking, it feels a lot more personal and you, you actually get a sense. I would say you, I've learned a lot more about how the people live with music, as Tantana said, and their own relationship with the pieces, which is just really interesting. And you wouldn't necessarily get that, I think, in a normal concert. In terms of, in terms of repertoire, do you think that people have chosen very different things to what they would be playing in a concert hall or yeah, because- we've been really, we suddenly realized that sort of around now, actually, um, the last couple of weeks in the next week or so, Loads and loads of people are bringing new compositions, so either things that have been re written really recently or, um, you know, some world premieres. And I think because it's totally free programming, um, people aren't constrained by what promoters want. Yeah. And I think that's something that people are really relishing being able to explore is 
relationships with composers obviously at a distance but still being able to talk with composers about their music and their ideas and to commission things during lockdown I mean there's also of course lots of Bach and Mozart and I think there's some Rachmaninoff coming up and you know there's the kind of the canon is there too mm. but um, I think that kind of free choice shows really just what people are exploring right now yeah do you think any of that sort of agency over repertoire... I mean, it's my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the the concert hall or the whoever is involved in terms of administration might have as much of a say in what you're going to play, or at least some of a say in what you're going to play, as as the artist would. So, so normally they send requests, or you send them your programmes that you're offering for the year, and then there's a sort of negotiation. Yeah. So it's, um, it's very, very different, and... Also, normally during the year, you are just offering, you know, a certain number of programs or pieces. So you wouldn't just think, oh, I've got a month at home, I'm just going to prepare this program. Because that just doesn't happen normally during the concert season when you're on the road all the time. So yeah. it's kind of given me, I don't know if George would say the same thing, um, but I've quite a few musician colleagues have talked about this as well. A different way of practicing with a lot more freedom can go down different roads and avenues where you don't necessarily where they're going to take you or even if they're going to be constructive but it doesn't really matter and so it's a really fascinating kind of creative learning and unlearning and relearning process. I'd also say um, you know one of the things we really take pride in is that this is you know curated by musicians for musicians it's a it's a platform for musicians and actually we have noticed that musicians are really um, you know, they're, they're actually very curious people that, you know, not given the limitations of um, what people think might be palatable to a certain audience, it means that they just naturally program a lot more diverse repertoire by just a lot more different, you know, uh, a lot more different types of composers. Um, and that's also, you know, composers that have traditionally been not really represented very much in the canon. So that would be like, you know, women, people of color. You know, I think that's actually a fantastic... Um, it's just a fantastic byproduct of what we're doing. And yeah. yeah. I suppose it's one of the few silver linings that we've got to squeeze out of this situation. I mean, I wonder how that will transfer into a, a, a live concert hall future, whether that having had a taste of that agency, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps do you, do you feel like you might have a little bit more of a right to say exactly what you want to play or, or is that diff too difficult to say? Perhaps it is. I don't know um, exactly how that will kind of play out in terms of, you know, relationships with promoters and halls because, of course, you've got to you've got to sell tickets. I mean, that's really yeah, important. Yeah. Um, I think audiences might um, feel differently um, about different types of music. That's what I hope because I think we've had lots of comments uh, from people who are listening uh, about the different kinds of repertoire, different kinds of instruments, and how they've really enjoyed that so mm, yeah. I think it is a chance without having to take that kind of massive financial risk that promoters and halls and festivals um, have to kind of underwrite to be able to do this and hopefully uh, we'll see the results of it down the line yeah. and this is the other thing that has often bothered me about efforts to do an all-American concert on a season or an all-African-American concert on a season, why not just make it a part of the fabric of the season 
And so you don't have to take a week out just to focus on that thing because that thing is, Jonathan, already included in the fabric of who you are. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about inclusion is that we gotta be careful that we don't give the impression that including means we're going to let you in. Uh, inclusion has to be more, we are all in this together. Yeah. Have there been any performances that have stuck with you? Particularly, I mean, for me, it was the Joby Burgess playing that that Linda Buckley uh, percussion piece, which is I, I I was transfixed. But have you? Um... Um, I loved. Oh, there, I don't know. There's quite a lot. I don't want to pick favorites. Just pick a few. Pick a few. <laughs> but I loved. I loved um, Tabea playing in her. So Tabea Debus, the recorder player. Yeah. Her first concert she did, like I think she was in her parents' house and there was building works, and so she's like between like a ladder and like some hanging equipment and like a plain white wall. And then she, she I, lo I love her programming because she always combines new pieces with anonymous like 14th and 16th century pieces. Eloise Werner did a really fun concert with all graphic scores, including Stripsody with all the dressing up and everything that that entails. What, as a pianist, one of my favorite things has been hearing the piano repertoire um, being played on the accordion by Samuele Talari. I think he played a, a Rachmaninoff piano in a prelude that I've known forever, but I've never heard on the accordion before. One of the most charming things about that is he didn't say a single thing throughout the entire performance, just sort of sat down and was very serious and played the entire recital at the very end. He just went, thank you, goodbye. And then that was it. It was great. <laughs> yeah, there can be something very... Um strangely powerful but when there is no response at or reaction at all I, i'm just thinking back to a uh, strauss metamorphosing that the the paris the orchestra i think it was the orchestra de paris did a performance of it in a in a concert hall with no audience and they sort of i think it's i think i'm right in saying it's for a string orchestra and it's one player per part i think i might be wrong but they were clearly so overwhelmed in this incredible musical journey that they've been on. They kind of looked around at each other at the end, but otherwise were completely silent. And I found that incredibly moving and I can't, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was, but yeah, sometimes, um, sometimes not saying anything at all is just as powerful. Yeah, I but, um, agree. There's like the human, the thing about clapping is that as much as it's like this amazing ritual of everyone being together and clapping, there's also like this, idea of normality invading that space that the music's just taken over and the minute the yeah. clapping starts you're sort of into that thing where it's about showing your reaction and interacting with other humans again I, I mean in some concerts when I've been in a concert hall I felt not ready for that when the cl clapping starts so sometimes like just taking that away can be really powerful yeah and all of these all of these performances that you just mentioned they are they are available on the website and on YouTube, aren't they? Yes. Um, uh, yeah. They're all available on the website and on Facebook. Yes. On Facebook. Yes. Yeah. On our Facebook uh, page, yeah. It's you playing tonight, isn't it, George? Have I got that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, tonight, uh, so actually, um, one of the best things about Living Room Live is the chance to uh, present stuff that has been cancelled. So tonight's concert will actually include excerpts of a can one of my cancelled concerts, which was... Um, that the Royal Academy of Music had commissioned two hundred works for its bicentenary, and two of these works were supposed to be world premieres. And you know, this is the chance that we get to premiere them. So that will be what what I'll be playing tonight, um, as well as some you know Chopin, Ravel, and then 
you know, the rest are all living composers. So that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there, guys, if that's all right with you. But it's been really lovely to talk. And I hope that the next time we speak, it'll be it back in real life. In real life. Yeah. Yeah. You got to pick a pocket or The Rite of Spring, Introduction to Part 2, written in 1913 by Igor Stravinsky. The Desert and the Robot Auction from the Star Wars soundtrack, 1977, by John Williams. Sam, you had a chat with Nicholas Collon, the founder and conductor of the Aurora Orchestra, who famously play entirely from memory. Yep, we had a very nice Zoom chat, and I've got to say his hair was looking absolutely resplendent on Zoom, those curls really filling out in lockdown. I hope all is well with you in lockdown and everything's going okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Thank you very much. How about yourself? Yeah, just sort of uh, too used to the rhythm of it now. I got into the rhythm of it and now it's a bit monotonous, I think. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you haven't just rung up for a, a lovely chat, unfortunately. We're here to talk about the new Aurora album, which is launched today. It's got the enigmatic title Music of the Spheres. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about where that title comes from. Well, it was actually a concert programme we put together last year and um, it used as the bizarre title of Jupiter that was given to the Mozart Symphony, the number 41, mm. um, by a sort of contemporaneous commentator, no one quite knows who. And that was just a, a rather neat little way of jumping off into the celestial orbit. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's rather tangential because Mozart's piece has nothing to do with the spheres. But... Yeah, it, it enabled us to put together this quite eclectic programme of repertoire that is um, in some ways, you know, to do with the spheres and the celestial mm. body. Uh, and there's the music of the spheres is this th- sort of theory that goes back to Pythagoras, um, who started to think about how astronomy and maths and music were all linked together. And, the, you know, how the length, the distance between two bodies, like celestial bodies, um, determines that the different sounds of pictures and that kind of thing. Yeah, that was fantastic. And is, I mean, I only came across Pythagoras in terms of uh, GCSE maths. Yeah. But uh, was was math something that you were excellent at at school as well, or is that a? Um, you know, I suppose I have always liked maths. I mean, I've, the maths behind music is really fascinating, isn't it? Mm. Because I mean, it's something actually I always think. If only I had some time, and now I'm sitting in a lockdown. <laughs> uh, I genuinely don't have that much time because of kids. Uh, but, if, you know, I'd love to actually really understand the science behind music because it's it's pretty complicated and it's so wonderful. And, you know, in, with Pythagoras, this was early stabs at it. He got it wrong, as it, mm. uh, as it was. But um, he was quite close. You know, he talks about how if you double the weight of something and then you hit it, it will sound an octave higher or something like that. Yeah. Um, an octave lower in fact he's not quite right so you know that sort of relationship between maths weights distances times 
and music is amazingly interesting because on the one hand it is quantifiable so you can tell why one pitch is an octave higher than the other and on the other hand there's something about music that goes beyond any explanation or scientific analysis isn't there and yeah. is into realms that you can't analyze somehow yeah no i've had several halves of conversations with people trying to explain such things to me before or sort of like how the human ear processes octaves and stuff and you're like oh that's that sounds great i actually should dig into that at some point maybe maybe we'll both get down to it soon as you say the disc encompasses a great range of music from sort of every point on the circumference and we've got mozart and thomas Addis and uh, max richter john dowland being rearranged by nico Mulli, even david bowie with life on mars what were the criteria for the pieces that were still on the theme but what made the cut is there anything that was you know left on the left on the editor's table <laughs> that's a good question um yeah there's quite a lot of different things um the adders was a piece that i've just loved for years mm. and in my view is one of the great contemporary concertos well really of the last sort of 75 years or so you know um an amazing outing for the violin soloist and and the orchestra in fact is very virtuosic and, mm. and just thrilling and beautiful and every sort of emotion in between it's it's a wonderful contemporary concerto so that was the big second chunk alongside the jupiter symphony mm. then we decided we want to commission something and the possibility came up to commission max richter who has a big following and, and um reaches a lot of parts that others can't if, if yeah. that, that's not a very good way of describing it <laughs> but, uh, you know his music is loved by many people and it's very beautiful and he wrote this really fantastic piece called cp journey cp 1919 which is about the first pulsar ever discovered in the 1960s and the pulsar sends back a beam to earth every 1.3 recurring seconds so we hear this thing people used to be very confused as to what it was because why were we hearing this very regular yeah. sound cp 1919 the star was originally called lgm1 for little green men one because they That's thought that, right. that recurring thing was uh, like a lighthouse or something yeah exactly yeah so he bases his piece around that you get these recurring rhythms and then mm. they sort of divide and subdivide again in different sections of the string group and they all build up on top of each other and it, all anyone is ever playing is a, is a c major scale basically um up and down mm. so it's is the sort of way that the different parts interact with, with each other again it's a very good example of simple maths overlaid onto a scale and mm. creating very beautiful harmonies There's, oh, you're working with, let me get this right, three contemporary composers or three living composers and one living arranger on this disc. Is there a different kind of relationship? Do you have a different obligation when you're part of the first introduction that that piece will have to the world than, say, when you're, you know, recording the Mozart, which is already a well-established and well-known piece? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, recording the Mozart is by far the more daunting prospect. Yes. For that very reason. Um, recording a new piece uh, uh, because no one's done it before uh, has much less of the baggage attached but also you know you have to get it right so when you record a new piece like Max's piece 
it, no one had done it before. We didn't know what it would sound like. We had to make some quick changes, for example, in the recording studio to the setup and thinking about how to get the best sound. It's quite hard to play, bizarrely, um, although it sounds quite simple. Often yeah. that is the way the simple things are very hard to record. So, you know, you have to be quite fleet-footed to, to suddenly check how you want to do it because there's no history to the tradition of that piece where the only people that have played it so they have they have different challenges are you in contact with those guys whilst the recording process is going are they in the room even um, max max produced his piece which was very helpful so he was in, in the studio um, or in the recording booth actually producing it so that was great because it felt like you know you can't go wrong there <laughs> You've got to make sure if you do a song like David Bowie's that <laughs> you sit carefully on that line of, you know, how to do a cover of a song like that with it, with in an orchestral style and not make it sound either cheesy or gross, you know. Treading the cheesy, gross lines, always tough. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you got through it. If you had the ability to have Mozart in the room with you, for instance, when you're doing the Jupiter, would you want him in the studio booth as well? Wow. Um, God, I mean, it'd be amazing to know how Mozart would uh, think of his symphony. I'd be almost too terrified to ask. I don't think he would have many opinions. Of all the composers, I think he would sort of allow it to happen somehow. Mm. Maybe that's an odd vision of him. I mean, everything as a conductor that you have to think about in interpreting a piece that's so well known, from tempo to um, articulation and style and the phrasing and what have you. I would love to know. I'd love to see how freely he would perform that piece, yeah. you know. And the idea of recording it at all might be quite foreign anyway. Uh, well, precisely, yeah. No, I think um, that, that's a very important point, that he would have viewed per performance and performing style as very different from this manicured thing that we think of, let alone the recording process, which is the most <laughs> manicured, you know, trying to get something absolutely perfect. I don't think would have even registered for someone like Mozart. I remember when you guys first performed the Jupiter from memory. Was it 2016 proms? Is that right? 17, yeah. Was the build-up to that uh, a nerve-wracking experience? Was it keeping you up at night, going round and round in the head? Uh, the first one we did was in 2014, and that was oh, Mozart right. 14. Okay. Um, so it was the G minor, and yes, that was terrifying. <laughs> and I, I, well, actually, I remember about uh, two weeks before... It, as part of that proms, I'd been to see someone do a Mozart piano concerto, very beautiful, and in they shall remain nameless. He or she had a memory lapse in the cadenza of the slow movement, and it went pretty, pretty pear shaped mm. as it also attempted to come back in. And I sat there watching it, and I thought, "What are you doing? What if if he or she yeah. <laughs> uh, remember that particular cadenza?" then what are the chances of, of having 40 people on the stage without something going wrong? And this could be really embarrassing, egg on our face. And I also I sort of sent out all these things to the players with suggestions of how to memorise it. I, I created charts and most ridiculous things. <laughs> and, and, and I later discovered not a single person even downloaded the, the PDF from their email. <laughs> Uh, and they just sort of learnt it and it was absolutely fine and that's no trouble at all and I've said you know we've done about 100 memorised performances and yeah. okay, you get tiny little things but less less than you would get with music I mean you get mistakes mm. with music that's the point so yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I've definitely had le fewer errors I would say um, with without music in concert than I've had with 
So I, when I got when I got to Chicago, you know, I actually left a phone message for a black violist friend of mine, telling her in Chicago. She lived in Chicago. I'd known her from Washington. That I had gotten the job at the Chicago Symphony. Okay, she got back to me saying she thought it was a a very poorly executed joke because the <laughs> Chicago Symphony would never hire a black assistant conductor. So you've recorded it from memory. Does that change the process for the players, for the producers? I mean, are they still using bar numbers? Are they just humming bits in? I mean... Yeah, no, we didn't use bar numbers. Um, how did we do it? Uh, <laughs> Miracle. I can't actually remember. I th it's not impossible that I, uh, the producer used bar numbers to me. I don't think we even did that. I think, I think we have a certain style. I mean, I have a piano out and I sometimes play, let's go from this chord or this bit. It's pretty obvious. We have a language where we're talking about first subject, second subject, let's go, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, no, but the, the process itself was, was very different. I mean, it was, it was extremely intense. It just has a different energy to it. Uh, I think it was more like recording genuine performances. And, and actually, we didn't edit very much, mm. to be honest. It, it's, it's longer chunks because they're playing very accurately anyway. And, and it felt like we wanted to get a sense of performance. Um, I don't know how much daytime TV you get a chance to watch at the moment, but did you hear Jeremy Vine referring to the composer of your violin concerto on Eggheads this week? I, I did. Not through TV. I did see that, though. It was very funny. Yeah, or Thomas Ade. But I mean, yeah, fair enough. It, does, it, it looks a little bit like that on the page, I suppose. Um, you might have to help me with the next name. Pekka Kusisto. Is that about right? Correct. Yeah. In Finnish, you, you put the emphasis on the first syllable often, nearly always, of words. So oh. Pekka Kusisto. He's playing the Adas Violin Concerto with you and likens it to being dragged into a black hole. Is that a compliment? <laughs> um, <laughs> How do you feel about about exposing that to him every day? I think he means specifically playing the piece as opposed to playing playing the piece. <laughs> it's yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good analogy. Uh, there's something celestial about it. I mean, definitely a bit like with Sibelius's music, you get the sense that Tom writes music that revolves in circles, mm. um, as opposed to linear German music. You know. Um, whatever, Brahms, Wagner, which sort of goes in arrows. And it's a great way of describing these plates of harmony. It's, it's, it's so common in Tom's music. You get these sort of giant circles which revolve round and round and round. Like there's a gorgeous moment in the second movement where the whole thing sort of stops and there's just four wind players, two clarinets, two flutes, and the violin on top uh, with very simple series of chords, very beautiful. And instruments from the orchestra start to add in. And it's like, again, we're going around this circular thing until it picks up more and more people on the way. And then the, the full orchestra is in by the end of it. And it's just a slowly revolving sort of candy floss machine or something. Everything I've seen of Pekka in the past seems to have him as this extrovert entertainer. You know, he's there on stage at the proms getting everyone to sing along with him. And I watched a nice clip of him sat outside his sauna whistling a tango and playing along with his violin. Is he still the entertainer when you're, you know, mid-recording session? Is it still, is that still his role? Uh, he is highly entertaining. <laughs> I mean, he's a very serious artist and a very serious violinist. Yeah. But, I mean, wears it very lightly and has a wonderful way of understanding the lack of seriousness about music. 
you know, mm. uh, the way of really tackling and achieving profundity, and this is the same with Tom, actually, Tom Adams, I think, is to also wear it lightly. And that's why he plays the piece so beautifully. Yeah, and uh, making music fun seems to be a big part of what Aurora's about, as far as I can tell. The site Aurora Play is up and running and acting as a bit of a hub for all your online content at the moment, isn't it? Um, well, no, we just started it in lockdown yeah. <laughs> um, as a way of putting up some of our archive footage. And we've been very, very fortunate, you know, through proms and other things to have lots of broadcast and uh, televised concert archive material. And we've never really done much with it. So we, we managed to get the rights from the BBC, which was great. And we've put all that online now where it's every week we're, we're doing something and we're doing some additional content around it to ways of accessing the music and having fun with it. So it's been really nice. And and also we'll have a lot of um, further you know, longevity after, hopefully, after coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. It's in Britain going up tonight, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Les Illuminations, which we did in this staging in Albrecht with um, circus dancers. Have you had a chance to try any of Jesse's Aurora adventures yet? Oh, yeah. No, we, we do them every <laughs> week. Yeah, with the kids. Oh, fantastic. Uh, they look really fun. I very much enjoyed uh, finding my flying moves to the Strauss Oboe Concerto. Yeah, oh, brilliant. It was really fun. Um, if only maths had such good ambassadors, maybe I would have learned a little bit more about Pythagoras at the time. <laughs> hey, well, thank you so much for coming to have a chat and I uh, hope you have a good rest of lockdown and that you're back to normal sometime soon. Thanks, Sam. Great. Pleasure. I'll catch you again soon. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Um, for, for many, and talking about the imagination, I suppose, of what someone should sing or, or conduct, um, there's a phrase I heard was called the, the first impulse to hire. And I think for many African-American colleagues I've spoken to, uh, specifically conductors who have talked about, yes, they've, they've, they were invited to conduct the community concerts and the education concerts and the pop concerts and the classical roots concerts and the MLK concerts. And, and that's a continuous thing. And they make a lot of their money in February. It stops short from going further than that. Um, this can sometimes systematically pigeonhole conductors in, in doing repertoire orchestras deem qualified for them to conduct or what might unconsciously be an orchestra's imagination of that conductor. Um... A few anniversaries to keep an eye on. First of all, Jacques Offenbach's 201st birthday on the 20th of June. Then Terry Riley's birthday, the guy who wrote In C, founder of Minimalism, on the 24th. And George Walker's birthday on the 27th. Fab. On the 25th, it's the anniversary of the premiere of Stravinsky's Firebird. And on the 28th, the anniversary of the premiere of Giselle, which, Tim, I believe your grandmother used to dance back in her royal ballet days. She certainly did, yes. Good old Pauline. The 29th <laughs> is also Bernard Herrmann's birthday, so why not treat yourself to a viewing of Psycho? As Tim touched on in his chat with the Living Room Live gang, there are a few live concerts coming out of the UK venues this month, so look out for streams from the Royal Opera House, Grange Park Opera, the St Pancras Clock Tower, Wigmore Hall, the London Mozart Players Live Series, and of course, the Whaley Cohen Living Room. Mm. That is it from us this week. A big thanks to Nicholas Collon, 
Tamsin and Freya Wailikern, George Fu, and of course, to you for diligently listening. If you're enjoying the Classical Music Pod, then please do leave us a review or get in touch via Twitter or Instagram or via email. We are the classicalmusicpod at gmail.com. I said, um, I've said before that we have to understand that as a human race, we're already fallen. Even if we all looked alike, we'd figure out a way to separate ourselves into groups of commonality. And so knowing that that's in our DNA as human beings means that those of us who are conscious of that have to be ever vigilant about not defeating that because you won't defeat it, but redirecting that and yes. and having a different influence on a person's thought patterns and, mm-hmm. and, and decision-making choices and whatever. Um, it, this is not going away. Uh, it, it's just that we, uh, here comes that word again, we just have to navigate this world that we've been given and try to make the best of it as we possibly can. <laughs>